what the world needs more of is that ability to listen. And in part, I think that's our willingness to be almost converted. is the best version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to The Remakers. I am Lillian Spencer and joining me today is my super delightful and brilliant colleague, Dr. Millie Rooney. And Millie and I have the pleasure of working together on this rather large and intimidating topic of kind of what is the world that we want and how do we actually build it? So you might be wondering to yourself, well, like where would you even start with a question like that? And there's this interesting sort of backstory to this organization that we both came to be involved with where a bunch of really smart CEOs and civil society leaders from these like major nonprofit and advocacy organizations were tasked with exactly this question, right? Like they all got together and they basically went, you know what? We're losing, or at best we are playing defense. We are not actually getting in on offense and sort of really thinking about how to remake and change the systems and work together and step out of our silos. So they they got together because they wanted to collaborate. They wanted to get out of the silos. They wanted to become more transformative and more ambitious. And one of the first things that they sort of realized was like, we didn't really have the language. When I say we, I guess I mean broadly on like the advocacy, civil society, somewhat progressive, broad church kind of group of people for the world that we want that doesn't descend into either negation, like we we would like things not to be terrible, or that isn't just super listy, you know, um, or super sort of wonky or technical, like actually talking about the world that we want in language that everyday kind of conversation happens in rather than the way that people speak in the faculty lounges of universities or um, the inner circles of kind of climate science or things like that. So, so that was sort of job number one that they set themselves was like going out and trying to figure out what would a vision for Australia look like. And I mean, really, you can you can say that it could be a vision for for almost any country, because I think one of the things that we found in this process was that talking to people who were really, really different, there were so many common themes and threads that came through. Millie, can you talk to me about that a little bit? Like, what was it like for you as this kind of academic with this qualitative researcher background, and you've been tasked with going out and doing this listening tour of Australia to try to figure out what is the country that people are actually aiming for? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting thinking back to those early days when those groups of civil society leaders came together and and I was a really, really junior person in the room and got to witness these conversations and witness these people um, who I really admired suddenly say, well, do we have a shared vision? Do we need a shared vision? What What is our yes? We're very good at no, but what is our yes? And I remember just sitting there and feeling this great excitement of like, yes, how do I say yes to caring about refugees and yes to climate? And 
how much more powerful could we be if we actually started working together um, and and aligning these things? And you know, then then getting to go out and listen to people across the country. You know, we were laughing before that the original vision written by this group of people included, you know, better streetlights to keep women safe. And that's, <laughs> to be honest, so like inspiring. that is, yeah, I, like, I'm not getting out of bed for that. That is not <laughs> ambitious at all. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having to think, well, if you want a vision for a country, you need to talk to the people who are in that country and you need to talk to people who are, who aren't you and aren't me. And yeah, getting to go out and, you know, we did this big listing activity and listen to people who who aren't like me um, was extraordinary because people people were, one, unpracticed about thinking about vision and, and at the same time really excited and energised by talking about what they wanted. And, you know, I, I think you're spot on, you and I have talked about this before, about how do we how do we find a shared language for a vision that people create with very different stories? You know, like I always think about the guys who um, talked about wanting to hang out with their families. They talked about shoeies, which was a thing I didn't know about, which was drinking beer from a shoe. I was going to say, for anyone not in Australia, a shoeie apparently is the art of drinking beer from a shoe. Yeah, and, you know, I heard about that. I also heard about people who wanted to drink their, you know, locally brewed, you know, whatever it was. But fundamentally, we're ta- they were talking about the same things. They were talking about time with family, connection to place, you know. So I think that's the really exciting thing. And, you know, I know you were part of writing that vision and we had that struggle of how do we put this into a language that doesn't come with political baggage? And that that was a real, real challenge, I think. Yeah, I just remember wanting to do justice to all of these really disparate voices because we are not the same. And I think sometimes um, the risk is that in our desire for equality, we equate it with sameness or in our desire for sensitivity, it gets turned into the kind of oppressive political correctness or, you know, there's this sort of we all must think and act and speak the same way in order to be officially right or accepted or acceptable. And like, I don't really want to live in that world. Like, I think that would be incredibly boring and oppressive and frustrating. And so, um, but when you ask people from really different backgrounds and walks of life, and I mean, we spoke to recent migrants, we spoke to um, single mothers, we spoke to really religious people, we spoke to really conservative people, we spoke to really progressive people, we spoke to um, people in, in big cities and different ages. And, you know, and when you ask them kind of like, what would it feel like to wake up, imagine, you know, five years from today. And I mean, I know that right now, 2020 was such a long year. It feels like we've all lived a decade. So waking up on the other side of, you know, all of the stuff that is consuming us in the news right here at the moment, and you've woken up into, you know, this country of your dreams and what is it like? And then you get this amazing convergence around these really simple ideas, like, you know, the the shade is plentiful and we can relax and, you know, kids play in the streets and we have time to care. And yes, there is equal pay for equal work, but like there is so much more than that. And I just love that, that from these really disparate voices, we were able to kind of weave together a portrait of kind of like 
our collective dreams in a way that doesn't feel box checking or listy or, um, and I also think the other thing that makes me reflect on is obviously, you know, from my accent, anyone listening is probably thinking this girl sounds a bit American to be on a podcast that's coming out of Australia or. So I moved to Australia, um, about 21 years ago to come to university and ended up just liking it and falling in love and staying. And, you know, I've come from, from a country, uh, that very much thinks it has a vision, but the vision is very couched in kind of very individualistic terms. You know, the, um, the, it's, it's freedom and, um, the bill of rights. And we very much look backwards. You know, we look to our founding documents as kind of, this is the vision of what America is. And, you know, there's some beautiful, incredible words in those founding documents, but, you know, it, it can also sometimes get us stuck, I think. And it occurs to me that, you know, for a country that is as good at storytelling as America, we don't actually have um, much conversation as a collective about like, what do we want for the for us, like not just what do we want for me? We're very good at being individually ambitious um, for our own lives and feeling like we have to go out there and shoot for the stars and make the best of our lives and you know live your best life and I'll straighten your crown. Like it's this very dynamic, like individualistic focus, but we're very unsophisticated, I think, and very unpracticed at thinking about what do we want for the we. And in fact, I think we're even very almost naturally suspicious of that question because it smacks of communism or authoritarianism or, or some kind of totalitarianism. But, you know, Millie, you've been doing some really interesting research your whole career. So for anyone who doesn't already know Millie um, and hasn't fallen in love with her yet, as I have, uh, Millie comes from this academic background. You did your PhD in community and like joy and delight, which I just love that you can do a PhD in that. And then you have found yourself kind of really in roles around grassroots community and democracy, and then kind of bringing that academic brain to some of these really big questions, but always with this sense of like love of people and place kind of at the core. And at the moment, like you're having these really interesting conversations with people where you're asking them, like, what do we want for ourselves? And it's a, you get a really different answer than when there's a focus group or a politician is saying, Hey, what can I do for you? Like, how do I get your vote? What do you want? Can you talk to me a little bit about that, about the kinds of answers you're getting from people and how they're starting to articulate this sense of collective ambition? Yeah. And it, it makes me think, you know, you, you have a, a different kind of research background to me in comm stuff and some of the conversations we've had talking about where you segment our audiences and those very specific questions about how am I personally reacting to this, you know, really essential research that does a lot of great stuff and really quite different to the the broader stuff we've been doing with Australia Remade. And I think the two together can be very powerful if we remember they're both important. Um, and, you know, we've been talking to to people really around the idea of the public good and asking that question what do you want for you and your community? What public good do you want available to you in your community? And even just by asking you and your community is shifting the answers we're getting. And I've been really surprised that housing comes up as the number one issue across the demographics. And that's not people who, that's, that's people who have very secure housing through to people who've experienced homelessness. And so there's definitely a sense of collective care. Um, 
other things, you know, I've been struck every time by when we talk to some of the, you know, people in their early 20s. One of the first things they say is, I want a place for our elders to belong. You know, there's a guy who comes into the pub where my mum works and it's full of pokies and he has to spend money to be there. I want a place where our elders can be part of the community without spending money or gambling. Um, So pokies for anyone listening to this outside of Australia is our vernacular for poker machines. And unlike other countries where these are highly restricted here, machines that you would basically only find in like Las Vegas and a few other key places in the country that I'm from here are in almost every pub on the corner. And they're a huge source of revenue for those pubs. Um, And it can be very problematic for people who yeah, that's their outlet. That's their way to kind of get out and, and be out of their home in the community. I'm, I'm so, so glad, glad you're translating. <laughs> <laughs> I've had 20 years to become bilingual in Australianese. And then vice versa, we're hearing older people talking about, you know, I want a place for young people to go. I want places that aren't, you know, that aren't food chains, you know, where people can belong to community. And then across the board, you know, I don't want to live in a polarized society. I don't want to live in a racist society. And while we're so much about vision here and articulating what we do want, sometimes that first step really is saying what you don't want and acknowledging that you want something to be different. And one of the things I'm really passionate about with this vision stuff is you were talking before about vision creates a place for convergence and and I would add also possibility and how talking about vision and thinking about the country that you want um, does actually give us, opens up potential and possibility and we can start to imagine, you know, let's think really wildly. Would we like our, our cities to be powered by a community park of trampolines? Okay, that's probably not very practical. <laughs> I was <laughs> but like, it would be my six-year-old would love that. She would say absolutely. <laughs> you know, but let's start with those visions and then work back to practicalities because you keep saying to me, you know, we can't be what we can't see. You've got to, you know, make the beautiful cake. And so I think I think there's there's real power in not just what people are t- saying around collective vision, but also in having the courage to practice collective visioning because it's hard to be different. It's hard to say maybe we could be better, maybe we could have a safe climate, maybe we could, you know, you don't want to be painted as naive. But when you do that together with other people, there's a real power in creating that possibility, which I, I think is pretty special. Yeah, and I think particularly at the level of like you can you can do this at the level of a big country, but you can also do it at the level of like your local community, right? And we have seen um, and been privy to some really amazing stories of people who have done this at the level of their local community as sort of an exercise in like getting closer to democracy. So Australia is really unique in that we have um, some things that you know, to any Americans listening would sound by themselves utopian. Um, we have mandatory universal voting. Now that might sound awful to you, but what it means is that it's very, very easy to vote, um, to vote early. And then on election day, which is not a public holiday, it's held on a Saturday. Uh, you rock up, it's extremely well run and organized. Um, I've never waited longer than 10 minutes in a line. The best thing about Australian democracy um, on election day is that you can find a place that sells um, sausage sizzles. They call it the democracy sausage. 
This is, it's just, it makes me happy. Um, so you can, you know, they make it fun. They make it fun, enjoyable. You can get fed. Like when I last voted, there was a coffee cart. It was at our local public school, became this real rallying point for the community. And, um, you know, it was this kind of fun, enjoyable experience of going along and like participating in democracy. But with all of the good things that Australian democracy has in place, such as, you know, um, we all vote, um, there's independent, um, you know, electoral boundaries, so we don't have gerrymandering, there's um, a great deal of public funding for our election, so you don't have to be like a multimillionaire or spend all your time fundraising in order to run for office. Like, there are some seriously good things. Um, and at the same time, like, we can always do better. And I think, you know, what we have seen is that there have been these communities where people have kind of woken up and gone, you know, I want to do more than just vote one once every three years and then go on autopilot and leave it to somebody else to run the country. I would like to know how to make my voice heard. You know, it's one of the things that I think is coming up in some of these public good conversations where people are like, actually, I really want to contribute. Like, I really want to be part of something that's part of belonging. And so talk me through a little bit um, some of the stories that we have heard. I mean, I'm thinking of um, two examples recently, um, the Friends of the Earth example, as well as the Indi example. But really, both of those were centered around doing vision and talking about what we want in a in a sort of very local setting. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, but first I have a question for you. Oh. Would you run for parliament? <laughs> Me. Oh, this yeah. is, oh, God. No, I have a life. <laughs> I mean, look. When I was young, when I was 20 something and I had my first job in politics and I went along to Parliament House with my, you know, brand new suit on and quaking in my boots. Um, and I was looking around at the time, paying very close attention to who were other female politicians in particular, were there role models, were there people that I could want to be like or want to connect to. And, you know, I think Natasha Stutt-Despoja had been in office um, very recently at that time. And she was kind of the cool young woman who wore Doc Martens in parliament. And But I must say at the time when I looked around, I felt like these are mostly not people like me. Their lives seem pretty hard. It seems like it's a pretty toxic environment. It seems like um, you have to sacrifice so much and put up with so much shit, frankly. Um, what sane person in their right mind would take this on? And, you know, I I admire, like, people who are willing to put their hand up. And I think most people do get into it for the right reasons, but I don't know that I am ready to make those sacrifices, at least not at this point in my life. What about you? Well, I mean, I've been asking people this all the time because I think that there's an increasing disjoint between people and democracy, um, which actually flies in the face of what I'm hearing in the public good conversations where people are saying, we want more democracy, we want better access, we want, we want better understanding of how decisions are made, we want to be able to disagree in public around democracy, around governance. And I keep asking, based, you know, anyone I meet, like, will you run for parliament? Will you run for parliament? And as a question to kind of test how how far do we think we are from our own responsibility and our own rights to get close to democracy because while I also love going to the fates that are 
on around election day, you know, you go up, you vote, you get your chocolate crackle or your sausage sizzle. Um, and, you know, it's fundraising for the community. It, it's a it's a wonderful way to participate in democracy. But everyone I ask, you know, are you going to run, says, oh, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not, I wouldn't be able to say the right things quickly. You know, who am I to run? And I think the really inspiring examples that you and I both get excited about are where what I keep calling these amateur yes people of people who who aren't trained in politics, who haven't got the perfectly polished media pitch, but who are out there saying, hang on, hang on. I, I think I think I should do this. I think I could do this. And whether that's through the Voices for Network in places like um, Indi, where they ran a whole lot of really exciting listening conversations with the people in the community and eventually uh, put up an independent candidate who was elected, Kathy McGowan, and she was eventually followed by Helen Haynes. But, you know, that was about owning democracy, allowing conversations around democracy. It was about values. It was about fun. It was about real participation and integrity and the community not only holding the MP to account, but actually supporting that MP. So when it was, you know, terrifying, scary media reports or um, pushback, that the community owned the responsibility. And then same with a campaign in Victoria to ban fracking. You know, that was a 10-year campaign supported by Friends of the Earth. And again, these amateur yes people, wonderful community members who said, oh, hang on, like we actually we have to do something. We can do something. We don't know what we're doing, but let's talk to each other. Let's listen to each other across difference. Um, and yeah, let's, let's actually take some power. Let's, let's not hand over the power. Let's take some back because parliament is for us. Democracy is for us. Governance is for us. And how different would it be if, if we were unafraid to do that duty by democracy, um, I think would be exciting. So I just harangue everyone. I say, are you going to run? Are you going to run? <laughs> but I noticed you avoided my question, Millie. Are you going to run one day? Yeah. Look, if we had the, if I had the community support, sure. Like, you heard it when here, people. Well, I know. Yeah. Podcast no, when soup, it, yeah. Millie Rooney for Parliament. But you know, when it's your turn with the community backing, I think we should think about what would it look like to do that well. Um, and you know, it, to practice, you know, if I never even think of it really, but to practice being audacious enough, you know, I've talked about the idea of courage capital before, like let's be audacious. It's audacious rather than arrogance to think you can serve your community. And we need to normalise that, particularly for women, I think. Um, and it doesn't mean we will, but to to normalise it as a, a possibility. And that's what's been so exciting about these campaigns like the Voices for an Indi and um, the fracking ban is that, it's normalizing getting involved in democracy. Having a voice. Um, and, and yeah, and having with that and, and in a way that's not just a slogan or not just a, you know, like no. actually having a voice, actually having an ongoing input and conversation and some responsibility for your community. Yeah. And and that, you know, both of those two examples I gave, um, Indi talked about be your best self. Um, and the fracking campaigns are not sure if I can get the quote right, but it was, you know, always look up. So they're about not even having a written articulated vision, but a shared sense of like, be better in a beautiful way, not in a guilt tripping, you know, you will be better, you nasty person, but uh, let's lift each other up. Um, and talk across difference was a really key part of that. That doesn't mean, it didn't mean accepting, you know, 
awful, horrible personal comments, um, you know, you can stand up against that. But it also meant really being willing to to be a part of a community in all the complicated, crappy, difficult ways that that, that is, along with the celebration. As long, uh, yeah, as well as all the kind of um, beautiful stuff. You know, I think just on the point about women running, I think that sometimes there are these subtle little structural um, things that seem so immutable until they aren't. And so one of them recently with COVID, obviously, is that the whole world has discovered that we could work from home a lot more than we ever thought we could and we can dial into things. And, you know, if you think about a, a, a sort of national office where you are expected to spend at least half the year away from your home to go do your job and then you spend the other half of the year in your electorate, well, geez, unless you live in Canberra, like, that's a long time to be away from a family. And, you know, Annabelle Crabb, who is um, a wonderful Australian writer and presenter and host of many brilliant conversations. And, you know, she had this book about, you know, this, the, the wife drought, you know, why women need wives and men need lives. And, you know, her perspective is like, it's not that men are inherently awful and trying to keep women down or anything. It's just that like, we don't have wives at the same level that men do, especially men who reach these positions of power and influence, you know, it's because someone is doing the real heavy lifting on the home front. And I think, you know, even subtle differences, subtle changes, but things like allowing more MPs to you know, I wanted peace to be meeting in person and, and forging those personal relationships that help them reach across difference and all of that stuff. But I also want them to be able to have like time with their kids, you know, and male or female, you know, whatever. And and so I think like humanizing our workforce is something that is really important for our politics and part so that we can get a better diversity and better class of people in our politics, you know, that, that you don't have to sacrifice so much of your humanity to kind of get into that space and stay there and survive. I mean, we just talk about politicians as a, as a career, as a professional class in such negative terms that sometimes you just think who in their right mind would actually take this on. You, you have to be pretty brave. Yeah, it looks very difficult and very scary. If you're enjoying this conversation and want more, you can check out our website, australiaremade.org. Really doesn't matter where you live because this website has some pretty universal themes and stories and a beautiful vision that we wove together from listening to people from all walks of life answer the question, imagine you have woken up in the country of your dreams, what is it like? So I hope there'll be something there that will resonate or inspire you. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, ideas, or feedback, the podcast email is podcast at australiaremade.org. Thanks. Welcome back to The Remakers. I'm Lily Spencer. I'm chatting with Millie Rooney. And we are talking about all kinds of um, things today. We've touched on the importance of vision. We've talked about, would you run for office? We're going to hold Millie to her promise, by the way. Um, We've talked about having ambition for the we, not just the me, and how we can come together across some of our 
differences when we ask people and frame our questions kind of in this way. And we've talked a little bit about some of the communities that have actually started to do this. So um, in the show notes, we will put up links to some of those stories for you if you want to go away and read more about Indi or some of the great work that's been happening in Victoria around fracking. So Millie, you've touched a little bit on this question of like polarization and how people don't want to live in polarized societies. Like ironically, it's something we can all agree on. Like no one really wants to live in a polarized community. And I think it's that our sense of social cohesion and social capital is actually still pretty good here in Australia relative to some of the other countries that we often very closely compare ourselves with, such as the US or perhaps the UK. And there's probably a whole bunch of reasons for that. But, you know, we still have social media, we still have people living in their bubbles, we still have all of our filters. From your work of listening to people who you may disagree with, what is some advice that you could give somebody, that you could give us about learning to talk across difference and learning to listen and understand across difference so that if we hear something that we might initially feel a bit pissed off or triggered by, we don't just kind of react to it. Because I just feel like this is a core skill that we've got to get better at if we're actually going to be able to get closer to community and democracy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's also important to sort of start out with, you know, when you're listening across difference is is it difference of opinion and difference of how we're going to get there and difference around policy or difference around, um, you know, thing, things that are a, about the life that we live or is it difference there's, you know, just direct hate. Um, and I think being able to distinguish between those two things is really important. Um, and you know, in all the hundreds of conversations I've had, you know, I've heard, I've heard things that I really disagree with. Um, and my job as, a, you know, my training as a social researcher, and then, uh, you know, I think what the world needs more of is that ability to listen. And in part, I think that's our willingness to be almost converted. I can, I can not like people I listen to, but I nearly always fall in love with them a little bit. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's that's partly letting yourself in, enjoy that listening process. And so where there's difference, um, being able to hold the space for long enough to find out what that difference is about and find, like, dig deeper into, well, are you saying that because you're afraid because your needs aren't being met? Um, and to, to, you know, I had this amazing conversation with someone who's very different views to me Um and I found myself as she was talking about some of the things that were important to her, I was thinking, yeah, you're right. Oh, yes, I think that too. She had a fundamentally different kind of approach to tackling the problem. But in and of itself, it felt like a good thing to be with someone I disagreed with agreeing to at the, you know, at the, at the fundamentals. So I think part of what we need to practice is actually just shutting up, you know. Um, <laughs> which, that. I'm pretty sure my family would say I need to practice more. But I, you know, being able to let someone explain themselves fully without leaping onto them um, is really, really hard to do because there's a lot to be really angry about in this world. Um, and it can be hard not to want to jump in and say, yes, but you should do this. We should change this. Don't you know that? Um, 
and and to listen to 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 people's stories but that that's hard I mean you know that from a lot of the the reading you do around what's going on in the U.S. and you know coming across building bridges across difference is really hard Mm. I think for me that's the paradox of how do we hold our values with conviction and yet hold our opinions or our maybe structures that go on top of those values with a lightness or an openness or a flexibility like how do we have a good foundation but like the window is still open and so like new ideas can come in and new words can come out and and just the um seductive you know pitfall of labels where it's not even i vote this way it's i am this you know, um, if I am a Democrat, then like my identity is being threatened by potentially changing my mind on something. Um, and I don't think that's a particularly healthy or productive kind of space from which to engage in any kind of conversation. No, I mean, and that that's why the, the you know models of deliberative democracy are kind of really exciting because they're facilitated and held spaces to help people with different opinions navigate together and experience the same input together. You know, the the example um, in Ireland around abortion, you know, that that was an extraordinary result from that process, and it was a whole lot of very different people brought together. They were, you know. People were brought into the room who had lived experience, people, you know, medical experts, legal experts, the experts that people wanted brought in so that, and it was set up as a place where you can change your mind. Who do you want put in front of your, you know, people who in front of your community and who does your community want put in front of you to make these decisions? And again, that becomes about a collect, it's, it's not just about an individual having to say, you know, I'm I'm going to listen more. It's about a community saying we all need to listen more, and let's set up structures so that we, as a collective, learn to do this. Um, and I think that's why the kitchen table conversation model in in Indi and and, and in Victoria with the fracking was so successful because they're frameworks for listening. And you know we'll, we'll put the resources, like you say, in the show notes to those communities. We've got some on the Australia Remade website as well. Like. How do you run a conversation where you just actually learn to listen together with a community to normalize difference? Because difference is wonderful. Like difference of argument is great. It strengthens us. Um, But we need to be allowed to get things wrong, to change our minds, to be told, oh, actually, and, and that was an extraordinary moment for me, you know, circling right back to our initial conversation about the vision for Australia Remade and the civil society leaders in the room was witnessing those, you know, they're, they're powerful, passionate, articulate leaders, like, you know, that you can put them on a soapbox and they can tell you exactly what they think. But to have a space where 40 of them could come together and say, yes, this, you know, climate is important, but hang on, the migrant women working, making clothing, for them, this is how it plays out. So you can't talk about climate with this. Can we do it like this? And and having a space where people who, who potentially could be big egos, um, kind people, but, you know, potentially big egos, can can come together and challenge each other is, 
is something that we need we need to all of us need to model and all of us need to set up spaces for it and that's you know that's that's the joy of of colleagues like you and others we we get to push each other kindly but firmly sometimes um well look i think you're absolutely right safe and useful spaces to have sometimes challenging conversations it feels like for all the ways that our communications and our networks have expanded, those kinds of spaces have contracted. And it's it's a big reason why we want to do this podcast, right? Is because it's kind of the anti-Twitter, you know? Like it's a space where you don't have to just speak in a soundbite. You can take the time to listen and reflect and unpack and go into an idea with somebody and maybe come out different to the way that you went into it. And um, I, I think that it's feedback that we get a lot in, you know, part of what I wanted to do is really just put a mic in front of conversations that people were having anyway, that I felt were so valuable and then almost felt selfish that, you know, no one else got to hear because people say over and over again, like, this is really special. I really want more of this. I just don't really quite know how to do it. Or I think we fall into this kind of like productivity trap where we're like, but what's it all for? You know, like, you know, there are plenty of, of, of big organizations with big budgets who are paying money to fly people into particular communities to kind of mine them, you know, like mine them for data, you know, let's find out what they really think so that we can manipulate it somehow so that we can refine our talking points and our agenda so that we can get them to change their vote or whatever issue that we decided they should care about, you know, we can make more palatable to them and that gets funded. But the kind of work and the kind of conversations that we're talking about are harder to justify from that really um, black and white outcomes kind of stance. And yet I think that those are the conversations that are far more effective because people know that you're not just coming at them with, a predetermined agenda. You're not just looking at them like a means to an end. You're genuinely curious. And, you know, we have this um, saying in communications, like people have to know that you care before they care what you know. And we know that that let me be an expert and tell you the facts because the only reason you're not living your life the way I think you should or voting the way I think you should is because you have an information deficit. Like we know the information deficit model doesn't work. We know from our own personal experiences that if we feel we're being kind of manipulated or judged by the person that's trying to convince us of a viewpoint, that we our natural response is just to kind of get defensive and probably double down, you know, and get even more committed. They say facts bounce off frames. You know, we get more committed to the worldview that we have because it's like, hang on a second. I don't know what thing you're running, but I am not up for it. So I think that these skills that seem so humble of like just listening and learning to open that window and learning to um, it, it are the foundations that are going to allow us to kind of come together and, and build more of this world that we want. Yeah. And I would even add, you know, like, you know, I, we have different opinions about Twitter um, as a recent <laughs> Twitter convert. Um you know, Twitter for me, again, it's it's not the technology itself that is bad. It's how we choose to use it. And we can, in the streets, choose to challenge people. Why are you wearing those shoes? Why did you choose that dog? You know, oh, did you know those shoes, red shoes are symbolic of whatever you want to, you know, rant about? We can we can pick, nitpick on anything in, you know, face-to-face or on Twitter. 
But Twitter can also be this incredible tool for listening. You know, the the most sort of extraordinary and confronting use for Twitter for me is 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 listening to voices again that aren't like mine. So I follow a lot of communities of people who have very different lived experiences to me. And I don't often engage and, you know, it takes all of that strength to just shut up and and listen and maybe disagree in my head, but really think, do I need to cause more division here? Like if, if, if most Australians don't want to be divided, how about most Australians stop being divisive? You know, that's, that's to individualize it, but, you know, social norms are really powerful things. And all the research shows that, you know, that, if if we can normalize things, it becomes easy, um, but it takes courage to do something different. Um, and so, using places like Twitter in a in a silent way, but also in an offering way, and in a way that says, "Hey, I've got these questions or these ideas," or I think can be powerful. Of course, it's different because it's public and it's visible in a way that a lot of the you know the best conversations actually aren't public because they're not being performed um so that's my twitter pushback for you (laughs) i know i love that you love twitter on my behalf whereas it scares me i just think that it is the place where kindness goes to die um yeah i think i feel like to go on twitter you have to be willing i mean particularly to talk any kind of politics or social change or public life which are many of the topics that i'm interested in right i think it'd be great to go on twitter to talk gardening and vegetables and classical music and writing and all kind of um but but to go into kind of these spaces that have been framed as kind of somehow combative to begin with and where there is this performative aspect and you know, I'm going to say the kind of most cutting, quippiest remark in order to gain points with my tribe at your expense seems to be the currency. Like, no thanks. I'll go have real life conversations with other people because I wouldn't accept some guy yelling at me on the street and being like, hey, your shoes suck. Like, why do I have to listen to that in my life? But I'm lo- I love that you love it. And and there is room for difference all across the board. Um, it has been such a delight, this conversation. And uh, to everyone who is tuning in for our inaugural episode, thank you so much for joining us and being with us today. Just to kind of land the plane and wrap things up a little bit, I, uh, I think it's nice to kind of end on a high. And I wanted to ask you, and it can be simple or serious or silly, um, but what is something that is making your life better right here, right now, in this moment, Millie Rooney? Oh, you know what? It was having an accidental long weekend up in the mountains um, down here in Tasmania. And there's a at the moment we've got the deciduous beach is is turning. It's one of Australia's only deciduous trees. Um, and it's up and it's in the cold and the wind and the rain, and it's very beautiful. And most of Tasmania was up there. <laughs> <laughs> In the freezing cold <laughs> and seeing the beams on people's faces of people who are out in this beautiful world that we love together and that we, you know, we have a bit of a story here. If you go on the pilgrimage to see the Fagus, it's the name of these trees, and that we have stories that we share that are about nature and wildness and a little bit of cheeky joy of like, yeah, we're Tasmanian, we'll go in the weather anyway because know that's what we do um i'm an adopted tasmanian but i'm take some of that identity but yeah that is that is giving me kind of 
real joy and hope that we have these stories that we can build on. How about you? That's awesome. I have two small things. So one is um, autumn leaves. I love autumn. It is my favorite, favorite season. And I am lucky to have lots of beautiful big trees uh, where I live on the brushy outskirts of Sydney that are just in this magnificent gold, glorious um, colors at the moment. And I know for anyone who happens to be in the Northern Hemisphere, that probably sounds like we're an opposite land. And yes, you're right, we are. Um, And the other thing I would say is roller skates because... I bought roller skates for my kids for Christmas and my six-year-old has finally, like, she's kind of just gotten the hang of it. And so she's gone from, she had one day off school where basically she's super tired. I was like, whatever, I'll let you have a day off to like, just be at home and rest. And in that day, she just kind of something clicked and she is now roller skating everywhere she possibly can around the house. I, you, you can hear her coming from any room, um, but she's just so happy. Like it is bringing her so much joy and to be six and to know how to roller skate, I sort of think, does life get any better? So um, watching that joy is bringing me joy. It is so it's so lovely to be able to end this conversation like that because so often we segment the serious political advocacy activity from the joy and you know this is why we do it it's so your six year old can roll down the hallway on a roller skates it's so I can roll down the hallway on my roller skates absolutely it's um, so you can freeze your butt off somewhere in up a mountain that's right that's right and that I think there's real danger in separating these things out so it's it's such a such a joy in itself to have the space to even acknowledge that that's it I think we can never lose touch with the kind of joy because that's our why like that's why we actually do the things we do and so keeping in touch with what we want and why we want it I think is the fuel that kind of keeps us all going so on that note we will um, bid you all farewell until next time thank you so much for tuning in to the remakers a podcast by Australia remade I'm Lillian Spencer and with me today has been the delightful Millie Rooney and we will see you next time on the show This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.